Welcome back to another class for the PSMLS. Tonight, our speaker and the head of the school is Angela from New York. Thank you. Try to bear with me tonight. I'll try to do as best as I can. Everything I go through is because of my years of experience in the Communist Party and not any other reason. So I just want everybody to know that. Whatever I discuss something, it's through personal experience, being in a Leninist party for about 40, 45 years. That was in the old party. Another, I would say, about 10 years in this party. And I think that should make a difference to everybody instead of someone coming off the street and telling us what should be and should not be with no experience at all. So with that, I'll start with the whole idea of a split. What is a split in a Marxist party? Why does a split happen? When should it happen? And when should it not happen? A split in a Marxist party should only be over one thing, ideology. And that is it. No other reasons. Not because you don't agree with the way the party functions, not because you don't like individuals in the leadership, none of that stuff. That has nothing to do with ideology. So what is an ideology? Again, it's a world outlook. Ideology is different from tactics. The word tactics. Ideology is different from the word strategy. Ideology is very simple. It's why you came together politically to form a party. So now that you understand what ideology is, let's go over the ideas of splits. Marx organized the first working man's party in the late 1800s, and they set up an ideology for what they want their party to represent. This party that is supporting the school, the PCUSA, set up eight points of unity. And the eight points of unity comprise our ideology. I'm not going to go over all the eight points, but I'm going to mention the specifics that are the most important. Number one, our ideology is Marxism-Leninism. Not Marxism-Leninism light, not a flavor of it, but actual Marxism-Leninism, as expressed by Comrade Stalin. That's where it comes from originally, comrades. It comes from Comrade Stalin. Of course, Lenin did not call his ideology Leninism. Neither did Marx call his Marxism. But after they passed, those who came after them felt that their application of the way they saw the world was correct. After all, one of them did a dissection of what capitalism is all about, that's Marx, and Lenin was involved with the first successful overthrow of the capitalist class and the setting up of the world's first workers and peasants government. So our ideology is our eight points of unity. If you read the first three that are the most important, number one is Marxism-Leninism, second is democratic centralism. Without democratic centralism, you don't have a Leninist party. Simple. Now we have to know how to apply democratic centralism. The third thing in our points of unity is opposition to right revisionism. 
right opportunism, as Lenin called it. The fourth one, complete identification with the revolutions in the 20th century, which was 1917, the Bolshevik one, 1949, the Chinese one, 1959, the Cuban one, and of course, the Vietnamese one, which was in 75 victory. Those are the main ones that we identify with. All of them were led by communist parties, every single one of them. It was called the Bolshevik Party in Russia, and that was the first one. So let's just go to the beginning of what the Bolshevik Party was. There was a split in their ideology. One group of the Russian Social Democratic Party followed a person named Martov, M-A-R-T-O-V, and people like Martov. They were basically following the Second International, which was the Socialist International, which was simply using the electoral process to gain into power and bring some type of socialism. The Leninists split from that over two issues. Number one, World War One. The Leninists opposed any socialists supporting World War One. And the other thing that the Leninists stood on was the Bolshevik Revolution, and therefore they broke away from the Russian Social Democratic Party and called themselves Bolsheviks, which meant majority in Russian, and eventually the Communist Party. In turn, they gave birth to a new international. Remember, the first international was the one by Marx, the Workingmen Association. The second one we call the Socialist International, which the Russian Social Democratic Party was a member of. And with the beginning of the communist movement, we set up the Communist International. Another term for it is the Third International. The Trotskyites came after us. They tried to set up an international called the Fourth International. Hugo Chavez was quoted as trying to create a new international. He actually called it the Fourth, believe it or not. But of course, it couldn't have been the Fourth because there was a Fourth. So we probably was going to organize a fifth international. So that's why the numbers are important, because they even involve what's going on today with Venezuela. I'm going to stop right there. You just gave a brief overview of the internationals. I was wondering if you could elaborate on who were the parties involved and the party-slash-nations involved with the various internationals, and if you had any book recommendations on the subject. Read William Z. Foster, The Three Internationals. It's really very easy reading. The one I know the most is The Third International, The Common Turn, and the original name and logo of the Communist Party in this country, this was the logo, the U.S. affiliate of The Third International. That was their original terminology. What would have been the major difference between Hugo Chavez's attempted or supposed fifth international compared to the second international? Good question. That's a real good question. 
My understanding of what Chavez was saying, Chavez and sections of the Cuban party, mainly the head of the Cuban parliament, his name was Alacon, who's still alive, they had a position that was very similar to Trotsky. I don't know if you know this. There was an interview done on CBS with this guy Wallace many years ago, and they were walking on the beaches of Cuba, and Alacon came right out and said it. We are not Stalinists. Then, if you look at what was going on in Cuba, they had signed a contract with Pathfinder Press, which is the publishing house of the Socialist Workers' Party, which is the official first Trotskyite party in this country. So I want everybody to be aware of this. There was, in my opinion, already, in fact, infection going on at certain elements of the Cuban party. And remember, this was not the Cuban party that was originally part of the Third International. The Cuban party that we're talking about today was a merger of the old Socialist Party of Cuba, which was a communist party, and the July 26th movement. You should know that. There was a merger. So the Cuban Communist Party that came out in the 70s was a totally different party that existed in the 20s and 30s. The Cuban Revolution was not initially a communist revolution, but it was a national democratic revolution. And people forget that Fidel was never really a supporter of Stalin in the way that our party is, even though Fidel did many good things. Because of the era that he grew up in and because the time he was radicalized, he bought into many of the things Khrushchev said about Stalin. It's very interesting, and it came out of a different circumstance than many people assume. That's correct, 100%. Thank you, Kamer. On the issue of splits and things like that, I joined the Communist Party USA in 1979. Before that, I was in the Young Workers Liberation League. My experience is that every split that occurs has to do with opportunism or revisionism, not completely accepting and having confidence in the working class, coming up with alternatives to doing work among workers, creating artificial barriers to doing constructive work. Gus Hall used to say that there are many good trade unionists, but there are not too many good communists. And what he meant by that was that all the people join the party, they do that and they use their credentials to elevate their prestige in the trade union movement, but they're not bringing the communist message into the trade union movement. So that's kind of what happens in our party, the old party, is that the deterioration of the ideology turned into raw opportunism and careerism. And it was a slippery slope from there until it's a totally non-communist operation now. Comrade was saying that Fidel was not a Stalinist, and that's very true, I think. But Che Guevara was. He wrote at one time, I saw that or read, that he came into Marxism or being a communist because of Stalin. He said, Stalin was my father or something of that sort. Second, Chavez, he was going to call that new international the fifth international. And I do recall probably 
in 2007 or 8 or something like that, that the communist parties that were Marxist-Leninist still, like example, one in France, they said, no, no, it's okay, a new international, but do not call it the fifth, call it the fourth, because you're giving too much importance to the international of Trotsky and number four. Third, something funny, when Chavez met Obama, I think in 08, 09, or something like that, he gave him a gift, and it was, what's to be done by Lenin, the book? That's funny. What do you think Obama did with it? Huh? Do all existing socialist countries practice democratic centralism? And is democratic centralism a unique practice to Marxist-Leninist parties? According to my understanding, if you do not practice democratic centralism, you cannot be classified as a communist party. That's my understanding since I first got involved, that there were communist parties that came along. They called themselves communists. If they didn't practice democratic centralism, how can they be a communist party? What is an international exactly? And then also, what makes it official? What makes it like, okay, for sure a new international is forming, or no, no, this isn't it? Every communist party from 1928 on was an affiliate of their country, represented. So in France, they were the French affiliate. In the United States, the CPUSA was the American affiliate. We came together once every few years, the same way that a party comes together once every few years inside a country. And just the way we have delegates and clubs and sections, each national formation was, in effect, a big club representing that country. And they actually got together, and they actually discussed ideology, and they actually discussed strategy and tactics. And that's what made them strong, in my opinion. And Lenin said it best. He said, the capitalists are organized internationally. Now we, the workers, have to be organized internationally against the capitalist. And he called the leadership of both each party and of the international. They had an executive committee. And he called them the general staff, the general staff of the working class. That right away gives you military understanding. You only find general staff in the military setup. And that's what we were. We were basically an army international army for the working class, representing the working class, opposing the capitalist class. Here in Southern California, when the party began to atrophy, we began a merger with two districts. The Northern California and Southern California were separate districts. They merged into one district, and the reason for that was to remove the power of our district organizer. So that we're under the leadership of the Northern California District Organizer. The question I have is he's told us two individuals that were instrumental in destroying his club. But I would like to know if he could tell us who these people were. Who was Arnold Bacchetti? Who was the other guy that you mentioned that's recently passed away? Arnold Bacchetti was married to Marilyn Bechtel. 
Marilyn Bechtel used to write for the People's World, the Daily World, and a magazine called New World Review. And she was a very good writer and a good comrade in a lot of ways. But on this particular issue, she fell in step. So Anna was her husband, and he was in New York, and she was in California. That's number one. The other one that was involved with that was the national office, and it was John Bechtel, who was the district organizer for New York City at the time. They were the ones. And the other one was, who just passed away, he was married to Esther Moreau. He passed away from cancer, but he was the other one. And those were the three people associated. Now, remember, at the time, the person who was key in the New York office was Jarvis Tyner. And when we spoke to Jarvis Tyner on the phone and we said, how can you say we have a position on perestroika when we never talked about it? And his answer was infamous to me. We don't have to talk about everything. That was his answer. We do not have to talk about everything. Our responding answer was, we're not talking about changing the curtains in the office. We're talking about an ideological foundation of our party worldwide. Because Perestroika said no more central planning and bring in the market economy. That's what Perestroika said. Bring in the market economy, no more central planning. And remember who's doing that today, without me mentioning it. Remember who's doing that today. I've met Arnold Piketty. I know him. I know Marilyn also. I also met Bill Davis. That's it. Uh, Bill Davis is the name. The point I'm making is that what was their responsibility in the party that allowed them that much power to overrule somebody like Gus Hall, who was the party's general secretary. It seems like they were in the majority in what we would call the Central Committee and what we would call in the PB. Some of them were in the PB, but they were all in the Central Committee. And I found out years later, everybody should know this, that they were in the majority. The minority was anti-perestroika, and it was Gus Hall. He was in the minority. And Angela Davis led the majority supporting Gorbachev as way back as 88. One thing that happened that you should know is that during that time, there was a man on the West Coast, his name was George Morris. And he was a correspondent in Moscow for the paper, The People's World. And he was a little bit critical of the changes that were taking place. So he was replaced as a correspondent in Moscow by Carl Blois, who wrote glowing reports of perestroika. Correct. But every week that. when we would get our paper, there was uncritical information about perestroika. Now, you recently sent to me something that Sam Webb was talking about, about how we should have criticized the Soviet Union and China for their path, the way they were going. But at the time, he supported perestroika, too. That's right. So how do we deal with this issue? How do we explain this to the young people, how this change took place and how these people were able to gain power? We'll have to go into another class. This is a continuous thing that we're going to be learning. So we'll bring this up again and again and again. Thank you. 
I was wondering if we can get a little more elaboration on pre-party formation, such as why it's important and what differentiates a pre-party formation from a party formation. Pre-party formation is very close to a mass organization. We didn't know where we were going. This was the first time all of us were doing this. So we said, let's raise the flag and let's see who salutes, that kind of thinking. Let's see what happens. And we did it. And in the beginning, the people that came to us, most of them were not even from the old party. They were from other attempted formations that failed, like the Progressive Labor Party, which is a Maoist formation. So people like that we attracted. So the difference is in one sentence is one is basically a mass organization. The other one is along Leninist party lines. I was curious as to what the theoretical backing was behind the supporting of perestroika and these kind of rightist revisionist tendencies. I heard you mention that Angela Davis led some of the efforts. So were these a postmodernist influence or what would you say was propelling this? No, it's interesting. I have copies of Soviet Life magazine and Soviet Life magazine called Perestroika, A Return to Leninism. This is what it was called. And they gave the early quotes that Lenin gave showing that the party and the government should be two separate things, that the party became quickly under Stalin predominant over the government, the Soviet government. And that was wrong according to what early Lenin was saying. What they were doing is they were cherry-picking Lenin's quotes. And those that gave rise to this idea, they were putting that as their reasons for perestroika. So it looked like they were using Lenin to show that perestroika was the correct road and that basically the road stopped a long time ago in 1928 when Comrade Stalin took over leadership of the party. That's when everything started to go wrong. So it was basically anti-Stalin in the early years of perestroika. Remember, it only was a three or four year period. In the early years, something called glasnost, G-L-A-S-N-O-S-T, came out. And that was give a green light to attack Soviet history. Attack it. Historians attack it. And that's what that was, glasnost. So now you had people attacking the Soviet history, attacking the Soviet policies on the TV set and on the radio. And that was pushed by Gorbachev. It was an opening up, getting rid of what they called a closed society. But in reality, those that were pro-Soviet were not allowed to speak. They were not hired by the state apparatus to speak on the radio or TV. Only the anti-Stalin people were. So you could see what was happening. Angelo has said something which I found humorous. It's amazing that my memory is being jarred too. I believe that Jarvis Tyner may have been in New York when he actually said it to us. And it was actually to our face. I don't know if Angelo said that that way, but it was actually to our face when we complained that, you know, you have, you have a meeting and he said, you don't really have to meet her on everything. And he just fluffed it off like, oh, you come up with something out of thin air, which boggled our mind. 
this is a communist organization, you don't do that. And the reason that what happened and that the party was able to do what it did, the reason the party went down is because they stopped holding meetings, they stopped getting information from the local group, the clubs, and then, of course, those individual clubs were supposed to send members to a central meeting, which then they would hash out, and they stopped having that. There was no meeting. Half a dozen people, three or four people, basically, were sitting in the leadership in the 23rd Street and making decisions. Regarding democratic centralism here, other than what was discussed, was there anything proposed or asked of this central committee or leadership specifically, formally, regarding the lack of democratic centralism with this decision on Perestroika? Were there any responses from them on it? And was there anything in the party constitution at the time that allowed anything to be done regarding the fact that it was being ignored? I was wondering if there was really any battle with it or if it was something that's like a coup from within inside the party leadership against party. Yeah, that's my analysis. You hit it right in the head. I think that what happened was a faction in the party around Angela Davis and her people, including Javis China in New York, that what they did is they basically used extraordinary circumstances to say, we don't have time to do this now. And they completely overrode the Constitution. And to be honest, in the old party, we hardly ever looked at the Constitution, the rank and file, which was a mistake. That's why we have classes in our party on the Constitution, because the rank and file never looked at the Constitution. We had so much faith in the leadership that we assumed, and that's the key problem, assuming that everything they did must be according to the Constitution. We didn't check it, and that's the problem. Another thing is that when this happened worldwide, this was happening to the various parties around the world, too. And in this country, it seemed like we saved it because it was known as COC, Committees of Correspondence. And even though they were in the majority a lot in the leadership, they were not really able to gain control. So for a long time, we retained just one party in this country. But unfortunately, what had happened is that they organized after the split, even though they lost and didn't come to power legally, they subverted it internally. And so as a result, finally, our party came to being as well. 1988, Perestroika, my club leaves. I don't even know if other clubs left because they didn't tell us anything. People who think that in our club, in our party, there's no transparency, they don't know what the hell they're talking about. If you want to see no transparency, join the other groups on the left. There is no transparency. This is the most democratic group on the left you're ever going to find. And I found that out through experience. I didn't know what it is to run a new party. So what happened is in 1988, my club left. In 1991, the people that left were pro-Gorbachev, pro-Perestroika. They wanted Gus Hall out. Why did they want Gus Hall out? Because he was the only remnant left of a pro-Soviet connection to their past. 
Gus was there when Stalin was there. Gus was there when Khrushchev was there. Gus was there when Brezhnev was there. They wanted all remnants of the Soviet experience out. So the party didn't happen that way. They lost at the convention. In 1991, they lost. Isn't it the same year that the crap hit the fan in Eastern Europe and in the Soviet Union? Everything was, in my opinion, orchestrated. Everything was orchestrated. One thing led to another, and as Comrade said, the party in every country was going through the same problem. So what happened is that 1991, they bolt, they form a group called COC, Committees of Correspondence, and for 10 years they were out in the wilderness going nowhere. In 2000, Gus Hall dies. Let's get the calendar right. So 2000, the Gus Hall dies, and they make their chance within the old party, Sam Webb, John Bechtel, all these people. Angela Davis was out already. Took their position to change the direction of the party. And that's exactly what happened in 2005. They came out with their statement, Reflections on Socialism, which said that the Soviet Union was never socialist. It was post-capitalist. They even denied it the right to be called socialist. So today, they keep going right every five years. Today, his thing is, Sam Webb, if you criticize Biden, then basically you're an old communist who hasn't learned anything. That Biden and the Democratic Party is the best way to go. If you don't believe me, go to his blog. He has a blog, Sam Webb, W-E-B-B. And look at what he said. Don't listen to what I say. That's the whole thing in a nutshell. I think the so-called Gorbachev revolution is a very globally reactionary, anti-Leninist, anti-people movement. Most likely, my position is that Gorbachev could have been a West imperialist agent because a referendum was conducted according to Mike Lucas of North Star Compass who died recently, and about 177 million people voted against Perestroika. So how is the Gorbachev revolution humanistic? And he talked about universal values of humanism. That has nothing to do with Leninism. That's totally bourgeois and reactionary. So now look at the former Soviet Union and the entire so-called satellite nations of the Russian Federation is in turmoil. And Ukraine is even trying to go to war with the Russian Federation. So I think people like Gorbachev, either they miscalculated or they were agents of Western imperialism. The reason why I went through the historical background is so that we understand what we're talking about. And I'm glad we came into the issue of Fidel, Stalin, Che Guevara, etc. I'm glad they came up into this. Now... What happened in a party called the CPUSA? A group split from them in 1950s over the issue of Stalin, basically, but they did not follow the road of the progressive labor movement, PLM, which later became Progressive Labor Party. You can write this down and do some research on them. PLP, they didn't go that route. They formed a group within the party called Organizing Committee for a New Communist Party. And I think the name was P-something. Involved with that were some of the longshoremen. Al Lannan, for example, from the West Coast, a party member in the longshoremen, a leader there. 
went along with this new group. Also, everyone knows the name Harry Haywood from Black Bolshevik. He also went along with that group. I personally don't consider him part of our history because at a certain period, he left the party and he went to form another group, which never got off the ground because it's very difficult to form a party, comrades. Remember that. It's the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. And other people can attest to that who are working inside our party to build it. So there are attempts. If you go to a cemetery, imagine each one is a new attempt to break away from the OCP, either from the left or from the right, to form another party. The cemetery is full of them. They don't succeed. If they last three years, they're lucky. Most of them last two years and three years, and that is it. Because it's extremely difficult. The old party has most of the money, most of the experienced leadership, so they're going to be way ahead than a new group that comes in. So how does that all affect this party? Well, when Perestroika came along in 1985, Gorbachev, there was an attempt to support Gorbachev without having a discussion in the party. I know this because Arnold Bichetti, who was representing the National Party, came to my club meeting in Staten Island, and he was quizzed and asked, when do we ever have a discussion on this? And his answer was, we don't have to have a discussion on everything. Well, he was told by the club members, this is a big thing, Perestroika, Glasnost. It's not a small thing. So these names you should put down, Arnold Vichetti. The next one is still in the leadership of the party in New York. He's my age. His name is Javis, J-A-R-V-I-S, Javis Tyner, T-Y-N-E-R. His answer was, there's no reason for us to have a mass discussion. Everybody supports Perestroika. In my experience, there was definitely not an attempt to have democratic centralism discuss the issue. That was such a big issue that my club in Staten Island of 25 members left the party. We left over ideological reasons. Remember, nothing else but ideology. In 1991, another group left the party, group to the right of the party called Committees of Correspondence. They're still around. They call themselves Committees of Correspondence for Socialism and Democracy. One of the heads of it was Angela Davis. So here's a woman who claimed 1980 and 1984, she was the vice presidential candidate, along with Gus Hall, for president on the Communist Party ticket nationally, and basically she did not support the positions of the party. Why did they split? They split over the issue of Gorbachev and the issue of Gus Hall. They said Gus Hall was too close to the Soviet experience and that the party itself was very close to that. And they became critical of the Soviet experience, and of course, they followed Gorbachev. So that was a big split. But that was over, not tactics, over ideology. When a group leaves and there's no ideology as the reason, 
and it's really tactics and strategy, including how the party functions organizationally. That's strategy and tactics. When that happens, it usually winds up, in all my experience, is going nowhere. So, what other parties had splits? Well, let me name you two. Workers' World had a split about 18 years ago, and the people that split formed the group called PSL, Party for Socialism and Liberation. Their ideology was exactly the same. If you don't believe me, go to the website of Workers' World. Go to the website of PSL. Look at their positions on everything. It's identical. So why did they have a split? Well, they had a split over personalities. One group galvanized around the Becker family. The other group galvanized around other people who were in the central committee of that party. This happened after their leader died. Notice when all these things happened. After their leader died, their leader was Sam Marcy. Now, Sam Marcy himself lived in Coney Island, New York, and when he was 13, he joined the CPUSA. When Trotsky came on the scene, he left the CP and joined the new Trotsky party called the Socialist Workers Party, SWP. And I urge you to do research on your own. Go to all these websites and see how their position is different from ours on almost everything. Sam Marcy left the CP and he joined SWP. In 1959, he left over the issue of Hungary. Again, ideological. Sam Marcy formed a group called WWP, Workers' World, on the issue of the Hungarian counter-revolution. Sam Marcy supported the Soviets whereas the SWP supported the fascist uprising. And I'll stop right there if there's any questions, and then I'll end with what happened in our party and how it's not a split. For a correction, Haywood never left the party. He was expelled in the 70s. The leadership expelled him over his position on black liberation. So he never actually left the party willingly. He was just let go. And there was actually no process within the party for him to contest the expulsion. So democratic centralism wasn't even followed when he was expelled. About the Progressive Labor Party, I have some relation to it. My father back in the 70s was a member of the PLP. They're in existence. They're very, very small. The PSL, obviously, I think most of us know about Party for Socialism and Liberation and Comet Angelo mentioned the Becker family, which was something I didn't actually know about the PSL. It made me extremely wary of their actions, at least nationally. And finally, if you have an issue with the party, if you have an issue with something that is going on, to not leave the party and wait until it's your turn then to have a vote. If you lose a vote, don't just leave automatically. Because if we want to be the Vanguard Party, if this is our ideology, we need to stay as strong as possible. And leaving the party to every small disagreement, obviously, is going to weaken it. I'm wondering if there are any other Marxist-Leninist parties that are doing anything right, because if not, that's scary. Remember, this was during my time, the birth of PLM, Progressive Labor Movement, it was called. 
They originally were pro-Stalin. It was started by a comrade by the name of Milton Rosen, R-O-S-E-N, Milt Rosen. He was the district organizer in the New York City area for the CPUSA. We remember the time it happened, 59. This was during the time when the Chinese party took on an adversarial role as opposed to the Soviet party over the issue of the 20th Party Congress, which Khrushchev attacked Comrade Stalin with the cult of personality and other so-called things that were negative that happened in the Soviet Union during the 30s and the 40s. So why am I bringing that up? Because today, the ideology of the Progressive Labor Party is totally different. And don't take my word for it. Go to their website. Their position is that Lenin, Marx, and Stalin were incorrect to go through building socialism, that they should have went right to communism. That's their ideology. It's not tactical. It's ideological. Marx made it very clear that we needed to go through the stage of socialism. So it's definitely an ideological change in that party. Everybody should do some research on all these groups. Can you elaborate on why splitting over tactics doesn't work? This is an interesting example I think of splitting over tactics is the Shining Path in Peru. I do think it is hard to deny that they were much more successful than their other counterparts in the Peruvian context. So I do think that there are examples of party splitting or tactics and making sense. It's important that we know the definition of tactics and strategy. Let's go back to what Lenin said. And he was not just talking about Russia. He was talking in general. Remember, this was the first attempt. And he wrote a whole thesis on why communists must be involved in bourgeois parliaments. And I suggest everybody go and read that. There was a book called Bolsheviks in the Tsarist Duma. Duma was the parliament when the Tsar was alive. It is now the parliament in Russia again today. Read that. It's by someone named Badeyev. This is all information that you need to know, which maybe you didn't read or know about this. I didn't know about it until three years ago. I was flabbergasted. So in that book, he definitely disagrees with the Maoist tendency to have an uprising against a bourgeois republic without taking first the road of being involved in the parliamentary system. Now, that's the difference between our understanding of the parliament, of what Lenin said, and the anarchist or the ultra-left. Their position, including the Shining Path, they were a perfect example of the ultra-left. They did not take into consideration a lot of things that Lenin said. But one of them that came off the top of my head was, you have to work within the parliament. Not to win, but to use it as a tool, a vehicle, because that's the time people are listening to the political discourse in their country, that that's why we should use it. Tactics can change depending on the current situation, right? They do. And if you really believe in the party, then you should stay and stick with it 
and we can help through democratic centralism discuss these tactics. Maybe we change it if it's not working, whatever. The one thing that shouldn't change is our ideology, is what's guiding us. That's where a split would happen if the ideology changes. Because the tactics can change as the situation evolves. The famous quote that Comrade Marx said, reality changes. As reality changes, truth changes. So what was true at a certain point in history may not be true next month or next year. It may not have been true today. It's different because the reality changes. Where did he get that from? Nature is constantly changing. That's where he got it from. And we're part of nature, so the reality is always changing. In 1939, we had a non-aggression pact between Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union. Why? What happened different in 1939 than 1937 or 38? I'm not going to go into it now, but that's a question everybody should ask. Was there a difference? What ideological differences are big enough to split over? Because while I read through the history of different parties, there are things that they tend to call deviations, like a right deviation or a left deviation. And those are not typically things you split over. They tend to sometimes be water under the bridge and result through discussions. But other times there's a the big stuff like the question of Stalin after his death and that sort of thing. So what ideological things are worth splitting over and what is worth picking through and trying to smooth out within the party? What is the biggest deviation that any party can do? That is go against Lenin. We're supposed to be parties of a new type. Lenin is party of a new type. If we go against Lenin, then definitely we're going in a wrong direction ideologically. So how does that apply to what happened to this CPUSA in 1943? Well, if anybody doesn't know, in 1943, the leadership of the party said that we no longer need a vanguard party. What we need is a mass organization that can work within the capitalist system for reforms that can be revolutionary reforms. That was the position of Browder and others, not just Browder, but the whole leadership, except for William Z. Foster and William Dunn. They were the only two in the leadership who did not go along with that. Everyone else, everyone else went along and held up their party cards at the last convention of the party to change the name from a party to a association. So in effect, they dissolved the party apparatus, but kept everything, including the clubs, including the newspaper, including the publishing house, they kept everything, but they kept it as an association. I want people to know that nobody left en masse when that happened, and that's correct. They stayed in, and within the next few months, maybe almost a year, with the help from the French party, Jacques Duclos was one of the people who was spearheaded to say that what the American party did was revisionist. They stayed in, and they won out, but they didn't pick up their marbles and go home. Now, let's wind this up to what's going on today. Well, recently, a group left our party. They were small, 
So they left, and they formed a group that is to the right of us. Why do I say they're to the right of us? First thing they took out in the name was the word communist. The second thing is their attacks on us were not ideological. It was structural, that we're weak here, we're weak there. So because we're weak here and we're weak there, instead of trying to fix it, that was a reason to leave. They left out, and this I think is actually partially ideological, the whole connection to the Soviet experience, like it never happened. They don't talk about it in the same way that we do. We were born out of that experience. We have a direct correlation. It's the same bloodline between the Soviet party and the American party and the French party and the German party. It's not tactical support. We are them and they were us. So to leave that out is ideological, to leave out the Soviet experience. And that's why I feel because it's not ideological, they will not succeed. And you can mark my words on that. And only time will tell if I'm correct. But my experience has shown me that when people split because they don't like somebody or they split because of the tactics, they're not going to go anywhere. If you don't have ideology as the driver in the seat of your bus, if you don't do that, that bus will not go anywhere. Ideology is at the driver's seat. On that interview between Stalin and H.G. Wells, because I got it with my new membership pack, it is as sad as it is funny to see how many of the exact same arguments are still being made today by social democrats and liberals against communism about the inevitability of progress and so on. I know the Youth League of the Communist Party, the CPUSA, was incredibly radicalized and was essentially disbanded by the leadership. Were there any attempts by the PCUSA to absorb some of those clubs or connect with them and make connections? What you're talking about happened two years ago. It happened so quick, comrade. We had no contact of who they were. They know who we were. They could have came to us because by that time, we were already in existence. So they didn't come to us. There must have been a reason. Remember, we were lied about. They said, oh, we're a small group. We're nothing. This is what they were told. And I think they believe that. They don't care that we're recognized by the Communist Party of Mexico, by the Communist Party of the People of Spain, by the Communist Workers' Party in Russia. They don't care about that. They lie through their teeth, the old party leadership. So that's why they didn't come to us. I agree with you, they should have. I've been to the People's School a few times now, and someone who's also currently enrolled in a public university, I wanted to thank the party for doing such a great job at running the People's School so thoroughly. It's interesting to be able to compare getting a public education through college to this, and there's just stark differences, and I really love the way that it's thorough and thought out, and there is very much so active communication. Based on what Angela was saying about having faith more than questioning it, the Constitution and leadership and all that, from previous experience with the old party, and this was just a few years ago, it's not like 10 or anything, it was the exact same thing. When I would question the leadership of my local chapter, the Houston chapter in Texas, 
it was pretty much the same thing. No, have faith in us. There's no need to question the Constitution or anything like that. Everything was thrown on the rug. Have faith and wing it from there. When sure. people get used to me giving lectures, they're going to see. I always urge people, do not take my word for it. Go and do research on your own. Don't be lazy. Do research on your own and see if what I said was correct or incorrect. They don't tell you that. You just hit it on the head. The other thing is remember what Mark said. Question everything. Question regarding democratic centralism. I've learned that the DSA here in the United States disallows members from being members of organizations that are run with democratic centralism. And I can't tell why don't they want that in their organization. Why is that frightening to them or threatening? They do not want any infection, any infection from any source other than social democracy. And the term democratic centralism only comes from one source. It comes from Leninism. That's where it comes from. You go way back, study it, see where it starts up. It's during Lenin's entry into the world scene. That's where democratic centralism comes up, Lenin and the Bolsheviks. And therefore, they're not going to come out and say, we don't want this or we don't that. They're going to say, whoever deals with democratic centralism. And that's the way they're really covering us. Their enemy is anything of a Leninist type. The old CP book called Marxism and Revisionism, it's a collection of writings by both Lenin and Stalin on revisionism and opportunism. It's a very essential book, and I want to read a little excerpt from Comrade Lenin's On Opportunism and Organization. He was talking about the Verona's Committee. He said that the Verona's Committee realizes perfectly well what a dangerous precedent might be created by the withdrawal of a workers' organization like the Verona's Committee from the RSDLP, what a reproach this would be to the party, and of what disadvantage this would be to workers' organizations, which might follow our example. We must not cause new splits, but must strive persistently to unite all class-conscious workers and socialists in a single party. And I think that's a very crucial reading especially on the topic that we have tonight. Go to the blog, everyone, write this down, of Sam Webb, W-E-B-B. He was the general secretary of the CPUSA from 2000 up until, I would say, five years ago. And you have to see what he says about current issues that are going on. And you see how bad... He was the head of the party. He's still in contact with the party heads because he still has his supporters in the party. He was out because he was voted out as the general secretary. Instead of doing what most normal people do, they step down, they still stay in the party. He didn't do that. He left. He was angry that someone else got the general secretaryship. He left the party. And he joined officially, and he went on his blog, I officially joined the Democratic Party. That's going to bring socialism to this country. Don't take my word for it of how bad this guy is. Look at it. Look what he says. I get what he says every week, and it's just amazing.
The other thing is the enemies of our party. I call them enemies. When people are renegades, it makes sure that you know what that word is. A renegade. A renegade is someone who leaves and fights against their former comrades and their former friends. The renegades who left us use as an example what happened with Browder. Browder left the party voluntarily and formed a communist political association. That is completely wrong. They have a whole history wrong. He never left the party. He was pushing for the change to the CPA, Communist Political Association. When the other people got back into power, they expelled him. And when he tried to rejoin the party, they denied him an opportunity to rejoin. That's what happened with Browder. Let's get that clear historically. So they can't say they left and they're in good company because Browder left. Browder never left the party. Browder was forced out and he was then expelled. So I want to clarify that for everyone. Also, those of us who formed the PCUSA were not expelled officially from the CPUSA. We were not a faction. I'll repeat it. We were not a faction in that party. What happened is we were dropped. The national office stopped contacting those of us in New York, stopped contacting those of us in Los Angeles, those in Texas, those in the, the transit club in New York. They stopped contacting us. By dropping us, they, in effect, kept us from doing communist work. So we had no choice but to form a party. We didn't want to. We had to because they basically dropped us. So we were not a faction in the CP. Let's get all our history correct. There is an old pamphlet put out by the CP called Marxism and Revisionism. It's not the article that Lenin wrote, but Lenin's article on Marxism and Revisionism is in that pamphlet. It's a collection of documents that outline some of Lenin and Stalin's writings on opportunism, revisionism, deviations, and general revisionism. And I highly recommend everyone check it out. That interview between Stalin and H.G. Wells is very interesting. Book recommendation, The History of the CPUSA by William Z. Foster. Excellent class. It's really important for us, especially to talk about our party today and the history of communist parties in this country and where our party comes from and what's going on with it now and what dynamics are really at work. So I'm, I really appreciate having the opportunity to listen and learn about this because how are we supposed to make an analysis of our present situation if we don't know our history and the conditions which produced it? So I'm very happy that we're doing that today. I want to echo that as well, and I want to thank Common Angelo and everyone who runs these classes again, because this is really priceless education for people to receive. I know that there's really no other way I would be able to ask all these questions and learn through any other outlet, I think. And with that, I did have a question. We were talking about other communist parties, other socialist parties, and I was reminded of the American Party of Labor. And that made me ask myself, is Hodgism and Maoism, are those considered revisionist or are they simply different ideologies altogether? 
first of all, notice, APO, what word is left out? That's the first thing I do when I look at a group. What's the first thing that's left out? It's the word communist. They are not a labor party. That's a lie. They're a small group on the left. That's real. And they believe in the philosophy of Enver Hoxha, who was the leader of the party in Albania. His position is simple, which is not our position, that after 1953, capitalism was restored in Russia and in Eastern European countries. So, comrade, that's their position. That's not my position. That's what they tell us. And that a group took over the party that formed a new class. Listen to this analysis. A new class. Well, you better tell that to Marx, that there's a new class out there. He doesn't know about this. That they formed a new class of bureaucrats. Bureaucrats are not a class. They're not even considered a stratum. Who are they serving? Are they serving the working class or the capitalist class? There's no such thing as they're a class. But that's the analysis of Enver Hoxha, that in 1953, capitalists took over, and the Soviet Union became, you ready for this, an imperialist state, at least the same and possibly worse than U.S. imperialism, that everything that the Soviets did to help the National Liberation Movement cannot be viewed that way. They did it because they're imperialists. And that's the analysis of APO. I reject it. I think it's ultra-left. I think it's not real. It's not dealing with history. I wanted to reiterate something that Angel mentioned about any of these splits that occur that are not ideological. If they're tactic splits, like saying infrastructure weakness, they leave themselves open to the same criticism within their organization they are trying to create. They forgot that the tactics and strategy can be now questioned and can be a reason for fractions or factions within their party. So I just wanted to reiterate it. They set themselves up for failure. I wanted to thank Angelo about what he said regarding our bloodline. I joined the French party in 72 at age 15, and something personal is I discovered the PCUSA last fall during the election with Christopher Elali's run for Congress, and I saw a video on YouTube of him, and behind him I saw all the posters and flags symbols of the PCUSA, and I said, whoa, this is my bloodline. It is my bloodline I found again. The first time I saw a party in America that reminded me of a true communist party. That's what I wanted to say. And we have to be proud of our bloodline, proud of our ancestors, Marx, Engels, Lenin, Stalin, the Commune, and Mao before he became Maoist. We have to be proud of all this. Kim Yosun. When it comes to Hoja, because we mentioned him tonight, is there a period of time that we support his works and his ideas in the way that we do Mao? In terms of Mao, I know the party supports the majority of his writings pre-Cultural Revolution, 
And even with names that we mentioned tonight, like Sam Marcy, he had a great book on Perestroika, which few people during that time had the same opinion that he did that we actually resemble today. So is it the same with Inver Hoja and that there's a period of time where he was good or that his writings are supported by us? All the leaders of the socialist countries after 1945-46, when they had what they call fatherland fronts, they all came together and supported a front, four or five parties in each of the countries, including Romania, all of them. Yes, whatever they wrote from during that period of time was really quite good. It wasn't until they broke with Comrade Stalin and decided to have a rapprochement with American imperialism. The other one is Comrade Tito. Had excellent stuff when he led the partisan movement against the Nazis and their occupation of Yugoslavia. Also, he fought against the fascists in Croatia called the Ustashi, the letter U. The Ustashi were nationalists within Croatia that were working with the Nazis. And Comrade Tito was right on the mark against those people. And also, there were people who supported the monarchy. Remember that. Both in Greece and in Yugoslavia, they supported the monarchy. And Comrade Tito was right on the mark. It wasn't until 1948. And it's true of all of them, every single one of them. You read the stuff that came out of Comrade Mao, it's great. And then in 1960, it's like it's a different person. I had been in Workers' World Party before, and I had seen people leaving over slight disagreements with leadership and having spent maybe a year in the party, they just get up and leave. Now, my reasons for leaving Workers' World Party were ideological. And having been in this party and seeing other people also leaving for, well, I don't like this and I don't like that, and maybe disagreeing with leadership over that, thinking some things are weak in there, whether it be this party or another party, I think it really shows a lot about a person when they leave a party just for the sake of, well, I disagree slightly. And I think that if that happens in our party, well, then we don't have a loss because we're trying to lead a struggle to bring workers into power to uplift our class and slight disagreements such as that are minute compared to what we're trying to do. I think this lesson tonight was very good. I think that it should be shared among a lot of other wannabe communists to show that leaving a party or having a slight disagreement means you abandon whatever struggle and whatever party is ridiculous. If the democratic centralist decision is made, whatever it is, and someone goes against it, that's never allowed, even for the best intentions. And therefore, what the party does is they expel a comrade. That's been normal. During the Stalin period, during the Lenin period, it's normal. It changed in the 60s and 70s. In the CP USA, we no longer expel people. What we did is, like what they told me, they said, you are still on the road with the Soviet Union. We don't carry that road anymore. Therefore, we're going in different directions, so we don't understand why you're even in the party. And that's what they do now. They drop you. The people that took over the CP after Gus Hall died, they had their own faction. They took over the leadership. That's not what happened here. 
the people that were elected at the party's convention in 2016 are the people that are in leadership. We are the same exact people. We did not form a faction within the leadership. The history of the party, an anecdote, I thought it was really interesting that it kind of mirrored the history and the timing of the fall of the Soviet Union itself. And it's one of those things where it's like, hmm, I wonder if there was infiltration or co-intel pro elements going on during that time. The answer is yes. Because if you listen to Radio Free Europe at the time, who were they pushing? They were pushing Gorbachev. They were pushing Perestroika. If the enemy is pushing an anti-worker ideology, then you know that it's not an ideology that you should support as a worker. It was under this veil of more socialism, more democracy. What could be wrong with that? Certainly got my curiosity. Later, the truth came out of what was really behind that in the surmise of the Soviet Union. With the Bolsheviks able to skip the pre-party formation because they were already an established party, and what's the difference between that and the PCUSA? Why were we required to go through the pre-party formation? I have to only assume that the way Comrade Lenin did everything, that it had to be the same way. They may not have called it a pre-party formation. And the Bolsheviks that did break away, they maybe were the pre-party formation because they then later called themselves the Communist Party. So that itself was the party formation. And the Bolshevik Party, which meant in Russian majority, that's all it meant in Russian, Menshevik means minority in Russian language. And that's the only thing I could see that what happened, they must have been in the Russian Social Democratic Party, and it was getting worse and worse. The disagreements, Lenin called them polemics. You should write this down. P-O-L-E-M-I-C-S. Polemics. Look at the definition. What are polemics? Very important. Polemics go against this idea that all socialists are going to be happy and join one group and everything is going to work out. Lenin said, no, it's not life. That's not the way it is. He said, through discussion and through fierce debate, we will find the right way. And that's what polemics is about. Martov, M-A-R-T-O-V. Write this down. Martov was the leader of the Menshevik faction. And you could read what Martov's positions were and what Lenin's positions were. About that book of Marxism versus Liberalism by Stalin, an interview with A.G. Wells. Yeah, comrades going to love this book. It's good. Stalin owned A.G. Wells big time all the way through. We can use that to beat the anti-communist people here anytime. Second, Angelo said about the dictatorship of the proletariat. What is it? And it's interesting because Engels' 20-year anniversary of the Commune of Paris he wrote an introduction about the new edition of Karl Marx's books, and he said, you want to know what the dictatorship of a proletariat is? 
easy. It was a commune of Paris. That's what he said. And then about perestroika, I read somewhere it was an interview of an American journalist of Russian people in 87, during time where they had Gorbachev and Reagan negotiation on disarmament. And the typical Russian thought that the USSR was kind of at fault as much as the U.S. for nuclear race, when hells no. The first one to use a bomb was the U.S., first of all, and after that, even when the Soviets had their bomb, they still wanted to disarm. And the U.S. said, no, we're just going to build more. I've been in many parties, PSL, Frizo, DSA, if you count that as a party. And I asked people higher up what they thought about other parties, and they would never have anything to say or any sort of analysis to give. Occasionally, they would talk a little crap, and that's the closest you could get from them. And I think being able to analyze parties makes it a lot easier to understand why you would pick a particular party. And that's why I've settled down here. I've found these classes very helpful, the last two, and also recommend a book, The Communist Party Manual on Organization by Jay Peters. It's available on the New Outlook Publishers website, and I've been reading through it recently, and I found it very helpful for understanding the way that a party should operate and be organized. That is the book that, if you read our Constitution, in the first beginning of our country, we mentioned that book. We use that as our Bible, to be totally honest with you. That's the guiding force behind our party is that book by Jay Peters. I think it's crazy that when Perestroika and Glasnost was going on, you all had to go through that. There was an internal coup with an old CP, people pushing the reformist line, and that you all were in the minority view at that time speaks to the whole trend of revisionism in the late 80s from Gorbachev, Soviet Union and whatnot. My question was more in regards to market socialism. Today, people might say China is market socialist or they're state capitalist or whatever, and we're strictly against market socialism here in PCUSA. We uphold Marxism-Leninism. At the same time, we also support actually existing socialism. So I was wondering, what's our stance on where China is and where it's going right now? That's the big question of the day. It's very simple. <clears throat> we had an ideological conference, and we came up with a position. We're supposed to believe that there are concentration camps in China for Muslims. We're supposed to believe all the other stuff that you've been hearing come out attacking, we call it People's China because the other name was Nationalist China. I'm glad you're bringing it up again. Our position to me is the most logical. We support People's China in their struggle against U.S. imperialism. We support People's China in how they treat the working class. We support them in their struggle with what I call the gusanos, the worms in Hong Kong, who are there, who have you ever seen their demos, the British flag of imperialism they're waving. Chinese faces are waving the British flag of imperialism. We have to expose these worms for what they are. They're traitors, not only to the countries of their fathers and grandfathers' birth, but these people are traitors to the working class throughout the world. 
with how many issues I've been hearing existed seemingly for the last few decades of the CPUSA's existence before PCUSA was formed, why did so many members stay in? I understand the desire to prevent splits, but it doesn't seem to have been any kind of representation of the movement for quite some time. I've been in for 40 years, that party. We are conditioned to stay in, and there's nothing wrong with that, as long as you stay in and you fight for your ideological principles. If you join a party and you agree with their ideology and you see leaders who are trying to change it, you've got to fight it from within. Some of them got to the point where they believed that even if their leaders are wrong, it's better to have the party than have nothing. They do not see the PCUSA as the logical evolution of a Marxist-Leninist party. They think it's going to begin and end in the CPUSA, unfortunately, because hardly any of them came to us. All the young people who joined the YCL, their league, left. As a communist movement, based on our Marxist-Leninist understanding of global affairs, the current global framework has radically changed because China is into what they call Confucian socialism, and they are competing all over the planet in fair trade, not free trade. So they are saying that imperialism or transatlantic civilization is not fair, but they are fair, so they want to have trade with the developing nations, especially in infrastructure. And China has succeeded in most developing countries in this domain. So I think the West is reacting to that by saying that the population control, zero economic growth, zero population growth. I think we have to address those very controversial issues from our standpoint, meaning that what does zero population growth mean? What does zero economic growth mean for the West and North America. So we have to enter polemics and analyze that from a Marxist-Leninist point of view to clarify our stand on those issues. Because Lenin was for industrialization. Lenin was not against automation. Lenin was not against population growth. Actually, he was for mm. population growth. Our yeah. party must defend those issues. People have to understand the party ideology. They have to understand the tactics and the strategy. The worst thing they can do is go along with something and they really disagree with it. You have to feel that it makes total sense to you. Otherwise, I don't think you should go along with it. If you don't understand it, ask, ask, and ask in different ways that we could explain to you the party position. Maybe it's not getting through to people, but to be a yes person isn't going to help us at all. So we have to understand that we say yes because we fully understand what the party's saying. If they don't, then the best they can do is say, I don't understand and therefore I need more education on it. And with that, I'll end tonight's class. I want to thank everybody for coming. Good night, Thomas. Thank you for watching this full-length class from the People's School for Marxist-Leninist Studies. For more information, or if you're interested in attending classes, visit our website, check out our YouTube channel, or email info at psmls.org.